Welcome to The Bounce Podcast. I'm Bob Lapine. Now, The Bounce Podcast is brought to you by the Great Commission Collective, and I hope you have taken the time to go to our website, gccollective.org, find out more about the Great Commission Collective. We are all about planting churches and then strengthening leaders. We don't want to just plant and say good luck. We want to come alongside those pastors who have planted churches and help strengthen you, help you in the month in, month out work of the ministry. Again, you can find out more about the Great Commission Collective at gccollective.org. I serve on the board of GCC. I'm also the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then this podcast is what we do to to help pastors stay strong and resilient. This is a part of the ministry of the Great Commission Collective to provide you with resources that will help strengthen you in your role as a local church pastor. And today's episode is going to be a little different than other episodes that you've heard. We have three guests who are joining us today, and these three guests we're going to Uh, not fully identify. The reason is because uh, there's involvement on the part of these three guests with work in the Muslim world. And so we're just doing our part to try to leave their identities a a little more oblique. So we'll be talking with Philip and with John and with Corey. And I'll just tell you that Philip has been for decades leading a movement, planting churches, training leaders, spreading the gospel in more than 27 countries throughout the Arab-speaking world, Muslim-dominated countries. His son, John, is also involved with the ministry. John works in the United States to help churches in North America uh, know how they can support and strengthen the work that is being done in these Muslim-dominated countries. And then Corey works with us at the Great Commission Collective to look at how GCC can be partnering with the work of the gospel in these Muslim-dominated countries. So that's what our conversation is about, how God is at work in countries that are Muslim-dominated and how we can be praying for and supporting that work. We also talk a little bit in this episode about how we can do a better job of engaging with uh, Muslim people in our own communities here in the United States. I think all of us would have to acknowledge that there are places where church planting, where uh, evangelism, the fields are easier to to sow in than there are other places in the world where the fields are more difficult to sow in. And when we think about Muslim countries, when we think about um, countries that have hostility toward the gospel, we often think, how do we take the gospel into those areas? How do we plant churches in those areas? Is that even something we can do? And the three men who are joining us are all looking at that and have experience in that. Particularly, we want to talk with Philip. And as I mentioned, Philip, we're using a pseudonym here because of some of the the concerns about safety on all of this. But Philip, this is something you've been involved with, taking the gospel into uh, Muslim nations, Muslim communities, and uh, planting churches, establishing churches, doing evangelism and discipleship. You've been doing this for decades now. Uh, Yes, I have been doing this um, uh, for decades. Uh, But uh, when you are faithful with the small, God would entrust you with, with, you know, to enlarge the territory uh, of, um, of fruitfulness. 
Share your own story with us. Did you grow up in a Muslim family? I grew up in a godly Christian evangelical family, but uh, as I grew up and I became more, more intimate with Christ, I went through a particular experience as I was passionate for Muslims and I, in my mechanical engineer uh, engineering studies as a student, I started to distribute gospel tracts in the university. And uh, one of the jihadists actually noticed that and a uh, um, few months later, and that was uh, in parallel with the uh, Islamic revolution in Iran, and this, um, this jihadist uh, instructed his f- few of his followers uh, to go after me, flog me, and uh, I, I was on the ground and on the side of the highway uh, bleeding and uh, my teeth were broken and I was in a terrible uh, shape. Uh, but God intervened miraculously to rescue me. But but the thing is that when you get out of this situation miraculously by God's mercy, um, you would ask yourself the question, would you be willing to forgive at the same level of your passion to reach out to those precious souls. And it was a process, but it was also part of the preparation and equipping of uh, God uh, to uh, uh, equip me and, and, and prepare me for a future ministry that is uh, mostly, I would say, uh, more than 90% focus on Muslims. Many people who have been through what you've lived through would would look at their experience and say, I must be called by God to some other kind of ministry other than to reach jihadists who want to kill me. The genuine calling uh, precedes um, the competence. So um, if we are really called by God and fixing our eyes on Jesus day in and day out, then this is where we get our inspiration. When this is where we get our energy to to really follow Him, as the one uh, suffering outside the camp, and we follow we follow we, we follow Him outside the camp. John, let me ask you about your involvement. You work with churches in North America to to help them understand the need, be able to pray for, support, and encourage the development of churches in the United States. How, how did this become your life's calling. Well, I was born in the in the mission field. Um, Philip is happens to be my dad, uh, so I guess it's in the DNA, um, <laughs> both spiritually and and physically. Uh, so, grew up in the mission field, and then was a missionary myself after I graduated. Uh, actually, attended uh, a, a Bible school that you might know in the Midwest, and um, graduated from there. Um, did pastoral ministry in the Midwest, then they sent me to a Muslim country, did missions there, and then came back uh, for seminary. So I've just, it's just been a passion and grew up in, in the middle of it since since in the womb, to be honest. So. so tell me about going as a missionary into a Muslim country. You had to go under some other pretense or some, uh, you, you can't just go and say, I'm here to plant a church in a Muslim country, can you? Sure. Yeah. As you know, Bob, it's, it, um, it differs. Some contexts are more open and more tolerant um, to Christians. The context I was in, um, medical missionaries had paved the way really 60 years ago, um, maybe 70 years, and, and they had saved the children of the royal family from, um, from death uh, through their hospital ministry. And so we had 
just great um, gospel opportunities in that particular country within the church, within under the the uh, evangelical umbrella. Just so many even freedoms outside of that, just to connect with musicians. That's that's my trade was music. So I would use songwriting to reach Muslims. We'd do songwriting circles and um, just have amazing, incredible opportunities with Muslims outside of that. Is there a difference between a cultural Muslim and a, a, a practicing Muslim? Absolutely. You know, the interesting thing about that is for some, Islam really is, a, you know, a religion. It's, it's really about the five times prayer. It's about the fasting. It's about all of that. But for others, it's, it's the society. It's it's your relationship with your parents. It's the communal ties. It's it's those connections. And so um, then you have people that it overlaps. It's both societal and and religious. Um, so yeah, hope that hope that answers. That does. Corey, let me bring you into the conversation because as you work with the Great Commission Collective, one of our commitments is to to partner together. We believe that we are stronger when we're linked together and partnered together. The Bible says that uh, one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. And so we're looking around the world and saying, how can we accelerate the expansion of the gospel? How can churches in the United States be a part of that acceleration? So when, when we find out about people like Philip and John and the work that they're doing in these Muslim countries, we're drawn to that. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. Had the opportunity to meet John three years ago through my son, and he introduced me to Philip and heard firsthand about their ministry in multiple countries. But not only that, understood that they had a comprehensive national leadership in place. It was an autonomous ministry that we could come alongside as simply as partners. And as GCC, we're eager to identify these national leaders who are planting churches and strengthening leaders. And we want to help them flourish. We do believe we are better together. So when I heard what was happening the Arabs, they were mobilizing for church planting and their multiple training centers throughout North Africa, Middle East, and Sahel Africa. I thought, wow, this is something we need to look into. This is something that we would love to be a part of. They share our mission, I believe, as well as our DNA, our attributes and values as well. Philip, let me ask you, do you have to operate in the shadows as you operate? You're talking about Bible training, Bible schools, equipping pastors, planting churches. Is all of this happening in the background so that you're not drawing too much attention to yourself? It depends on the on the context. So for instance, let me mention a country like Morocco. Um, you have to be in the shadow. A country uh, like Algeria, definitely you have to be in the shadow. If you want to go to the Gulf, uh, you have to be also. But uh, there are other countries that thank God it is still day for them. Hmm. The night has not come yet. So we are aggressive in a sense to uh, to really seize these opportunities before uh, night may come. And in those countries where uh, day is still day has still dawned and you can operate a little more uh, out in the open. Do, do you still face backlash and persecution in those countries? In some, yes. Uh, in one of the nations where I stayed for years, I faced, yes, and I was, I'm still blacklisted and uh, revoked my uh, dual citizen in that nation uh, where I had it. And uh, 
um, you know, um, threat, uh, threats of uh, imprisonment or maybe also up to to be killed. But but the thing is, as we trust the sovereign God, I remember that um, uh, Paul once said that, why do we endanger our lives every hour in First uh, Corinthians 15, I believe. So the thing is, is that uh, the gospel always goes with risk. John, um, in countries where you do have to operate in the shadows, what does the ministry look like there? Some of these countries, we prayerfully look for candidates that we vet heavily through um, prayer and through references. And we take um, a few of these candidates, mostly Muslim background believers, MBBs, and we just take them into a secluded probably apartment or villa, try to do a residential program, probably five to 15 or 20 men and women and go in depth with them um, in, th in four, usually three to four aspects. Uh, one is the head. We train them theologically and biblically. Uh, the heart is the second aspect. So character, hands, which is vocation, and then feet, which is evangelism. However, some countries, like the country of Mauritania, it's, uh, I believe, 99.7% Muslim. So we pull um, those guys out, also Muslim background believers, MBBs, pull them out to Senegal, uh, which is a country that has more openness, still a Muslim country, but is more open. We train them there, then we send them back to Mauritania. MBBs, Muslim background believers, certainly it's, it's a work of God in anyone's heart for them to be open to the gospel. But I'm just thinking of the implications of believing the gospel in a 97% Islamic country. Uh, counting the cost there is different than it is in the United States. Talk about that, will you? It's, it's really inspiring, Bob, to see the Muslim background believing community how they uh, they really embarrass us, even as Egyptian Christians. You know, I was born in Egypt, lived there in the 90s. Um, so I count myself as an Egyptian citizen and a Christian. But I see these people, how they embrace the cross, how they embrace suffering. Um, there's a story, if I may, just a short story of a, of a woman who came to Christ, a Muslim woman in Egypt, and she went to one of the largest churches to seek mentorship from a, a Christian Egyptian pastor. And she said, you know, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to evangelize. Like, come on, let's go. Let's do this. And he just said, hey, just chillax. Just, you know, just hold your horses for a second. You know, I like your zeal, but, you know, get some knowledge with it too. And she couldn't contain herself. She was evangelizing her mom and her mom, her Muslim mother, poisoned her food. And uh, and God miraculously saved her. And again, she she you know she came with that update to the senior pastor. She said, "You know, I've I've been doing evangelism. My mom poisoned the food, and I'm still alive." And he again, he said, "Just please relax, like take it easy." And she would not. She refused. And long story short, her family pushed her out of the fifth uh, story, the fifth floor, um, to her death. She she actually that second time she died. And, and just just to see that tenacity, that determination, that that zeal for the gospel, um, it's it's so inspiring. But there is risk, as we heard. I know that in parts of Africa there are distorted gospel messages being advanced. I, I know that uh, that the prosperity gospel is across the continent uh, widely being being articulated. Is it true in 
Muslim-majority countries as well? Are there distorted gospel messages? And, and uh, Philip, why don't you, you speak to this? Is, is this? Do you find yourself having to deal with distortions of the Christian message? Uh, I would say, Bob, that whenever you have lack of solid, pure Bible teaching, you expect uh, syncretism, and you also expect um, strange teachings to penetrate the Christian communities, uh, and it appeals to the um, to the you know poor people down there. Um, if you uh, like me, attended a seminar for four thousand pastors, and one of those brothers who came with false um, promises uh, from that perspective, from that view, and said, you know, guys, you came with uh, bicycles to reach this uh, event and venue. Uh, next year when I come, everybody, uh, the 4,000 of you will have his own personal car. And uh, I mean, it's just, uh, it makes you sad. If, if, if you're starting a spiritual conversation with someone who is from a Muslim background. What are you looking for? What What's the evangelistic approach that you take as you talk to folks who grew up in Muslim-majority countries? I would just um, uh, share one or two br very briefly here. To say one, a good question is, since there is no eternal security in their system, a good question to just to start the discussion, where are you going after you die? And I mean, the, the, the general answer and the known answer is that I don't know, you know, and you, you take it from there. Another approach that you can use is that there is a commonality, little commonalities here and there uh, in their uh, book. One of them is the story of um, uh, offering the, the uh, Abraham offering his son. So this is a good uh, entry, if you would, because they have a, um, a verse that says, uh, which is, we have redeemed him, the son, uh, with a great sacrifice. So you can actually emphasize, uh, underline redemption here. You have, we have redeemed him, so you have redemption, okay? Um, but what does it mean by redemption? And who's the great sacrifice? Is my understanding is that the animal is inferior, right, to the to the man, to the young man that time. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, you know, you you. I think um, good questions will help our Muslim friend to uh, think, and uh, you leave the seeds, and you don't expect uh, immediate answers, immediate outcome or immediate fruit, obviously, uh, but maybe someone else would come right after you and do something else. But generally, I would conclude the discussion, if it is a short time, to say, you know what, if you are sincere and honest about eternity and about knowing the true God, then go to him in your prayer and ask him to reveal himself to you, and he will do. And by the way, I know many friends like you who did this prayer, who prayed this prayer sincerely and genuinely, and God revealed himself however the way he chose to manifest himself. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, and John, let me ask you the same question, because many of us 
here in the United States, we have folks in our community who uh, come from a Muslim background or who may still be practicing Muslims. Uh, what can we do as U.S. churches to more effectively engage with uh, Muslims who live in the States? I think friendship is is key. Many, uh, many Muslims, when they come to the States, they spend years and years in enclosed communities. Um, they, you know, they miss home, so they want to be a part of their own culture. But trying to invite friends and families kind of out of that community into your home for Thanksgiving, you know, for a ball game, you know, for, you know, a high school basketball, you know, just kind of building friendships with people is so important. One of the reasons that we have modern jihadism, this is an interesting uh, story, is the the founder uh, went to Colorado in the 50s and not a single person invited him into his home. <laughs> he, he came back to Egypt and actually was imprisoned because he was so aggressive and fundamentalist in his mentality. And from him, you get bin Laden, you get ISIS, like he's really the root of all of it. And that's not that's not um, you know a front or a a downer on on American hospitality. I've been a recipient of amazing American hospitality, but it's just an encouragement. Take that extra step, invite somebody into your home, and then I would say prayer. Really, prayer is so powerful. So many Muslims are seeing visions of Jesus, encountering Him in amazing ways, and so encouraging your church to say, hey, we've got a mosque down the road, we've got a you know Muslim, uh, an Arab uh, grocery store down the street, why don't we just take one night of the week or during our, our, more, our Sunday morning prayer time and just by name pray for that mosque and, and pray for your Muslim neighbor and, and just take that, that extra step. Um, and I think, I, think, I think God will honor that. Talk to me, because I've been hearing stories of God showing up speaking to people in dreams, that that's been happening more in, in the 1040 window and in Muslim countries. And and some of us hear about that and go, is, is that really, is that what God is really doing? Talk to us about that. One of my favorite um, uh, stories um, is, um, well, I'll back up and say that the, the structure of Islam has built four walls around its people so that there's no penetration of the gospel. Um, so, you know, whether it's secluding uh, people, whether it's closed countries, restrictions, whether it's, you know, Saudi Arabia for years not being uh, able to have uh, worship centers. So these walls, these enclosures um, have created obstacles in, in, hum in, a, human, in a human way um, for Muslims to come to Christ. But what we were just listening to dad at another um, um, event, and he was saying, thank the Lord that Jesus can come through the roof. And so, you know, through the ceiling, he can come. Even, uh, you know, the gospel is not chained. Paul is chained, but the gospel can come to people. And so I think that as a result of the Western church being prayerful for many, many years, the Egyptian church being prayerful for many, many years, praying for Muslims, God is um, God's breaking these strongholds. And Jesus, even, even if I can't go to a Muslim, Jesus is appearing to so many Muslims. Um, and, and the story, Bob, is there's a man in a North African country, and he is the, the leader of a terrorist group. And they're about to bomb a French compound. 
and the bombing is supposed to be at 4 a.m. He's supposed to hit the button at 4 a.m. And Jesus appears to him at 2 a.m. and says, you're not doing this. You are not doing this bombing thing. And he says, I'm the leader. He's talking to Jesus. I'm the leader. You can't, st- you know, I- I've got to lead my group into this. And Jesus says, no, leads him away from um, from bombing this French compound to a marketplace Somebody in the marketplace leads him to a Bible study. He encounters Jesus and eventually joins one of our church planting schools to be a church planter and becomes, as you would say, a Saul, a terrorist Saul to become a Paul to reach um, to reach other Muslims for Christ. So it's just so remarkable. Corey, as you're talking with U.S. pastors, those who are a part of the Great Commission Collective or those who are outside of the collective, and you're talking about how we take the gospel literally to the ends of the earth, that's where that that's the mandate. It's not take it to selected countries. It's take it to people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Looking at the opportunities God has put in front of us here to maybe partner with folks like Philip and John, uh, what's your message to us as pastors? I think there's an amazing opportunity here. It's not just an opportunity, however, to give or leverage our resources in partnership. Yes, all of that. But we have an opportunity to learn from our brothers. And even as I hear these stories, it addresses my uh, kind of mentality of scarcity, I think, or at least how I often limit God and his activity or lower my expectations or conform him to my low expectations of what he can do in places like the Middle East and Muslim world. God is at work. And Lord, there's something you want to teach me in this, Mm. something I may have to give to be a part of this work, but there's things you want to do in my heart, in my church, by my involvement, as I see you at work in new and fresh ways obliterating what I thought was even possible um, or the obstacles that would stand in my way or the gospel's way. And so I I think there's so much here for us to do, engage in, partner with through a ministry like John and Phillips, but also for us to learn as churches as well, as we are truly better together and stronger together. And there are gifts that the church has in the Middle East that we need. Um, I know my brothers here didn't mention it, but if I could just say as well, just their dedication to corporate prayer as well. That just struck me as we were talking over lunch about their mobilization conference they have each and every year. That conference begins at 5 a.m. They spend two and a half hours in concerted corporate prayer to launch every day in every conference session. I just thought, wow, there's something here for me, Lord. There's something here for us, um, for us to learn. So I just, I'm just eager and desirous and jealous in the best sense for our churches, not only to be able to be a part of what God is doing in this area of the world, but also for us to learn in ways that's going to leaven us back here in North America as well. Philip, we talked about the fact that a person who comes from a majority Muslim background comes to faith that that's a uh, that they have to count the cost. I'm just wondering if when you see God bring new life into someone's life who has come out of a majority Muslim background, does it look different than when somebody in the United States comes to faith? I'm imagining there might be a higher level of commitment and passion and because they recognize the disparity. You know, we those of us who grow up in in 
in the United States kind of are inoculated a little bit against Christianity. I'm just wondering if there's a there's an excitement and a passion that might go deeper among Muslim converts. Uh, let me put it this way. We are in the eyes of the MBBs as Arab Christians who have tasted the goodness of God for decades in their eyes, they sometimes, if they are directed to, they would say, you are criminals. Because you have kept this, these treasures mm -hmm. and you have not been uh, courageous to come alongside us and tell us the truth. Why was that? So why I'm saying this as, as to, to, to say that those guys who have lived the thick darkness of their system, when they come out to the light, they highly appreciate the light far more than us. Mm. And they wanted to share that light with their uh, uh, fellow um, uh, um, Muslims and, and, and particularly with their, with their families. Mm. Um, another observation, if you please, is that um, uh, they are not only uh, more appreciative than us of this, of, of God's goodness, but um, I mean, the, the story that comes to mind quickly is Luke 7, when Jesus said that this, this woman, towards the end of Luke 7, when this, uh, it's, it was called a sinner in the city. Um, and and you, as you think of that, Jesus' Jesus uh, commentary was, um, it has been, um, sh she loved much because she has been forgiven much. Mm. So, so, uh, so those who appreciate the grace are the ones that are coming mm. from the from the uh, uh, depth of uh, of hell of of hell uh, of uh, of that system. Uh, that they were deceived uh, uh, in it for uh, centuries. Well, that was a fascinating look at some of the challenges that church planters face in parts of the world where there's hostility to the gospel. I hope you'll be praying for the, the men we talked to today. If you'd like to find out more about the work of the Ministry of Streams International, there's a link on our website at gccollective.org. And of course, you can find out on our website about the international outreach of the Great Commission Collective. We're planting churches here in the United States and in Canada, but also in other parts of the world and actually seeing great favor in, in certain parts of the world uh, where God seems to be going before us and where church networks are growing and expanding. So again, find out more on our website at gccollective.org. As always, we'd love to have you subscribe and like this podcast. It helps us get the word out to other pastors and planters. And of course, you can do that as well. If you find a particular episode, something that you'd like to pass on to other pastors or planters, you can point them to that specific episode, of course, or you can encourage them to subscribe to and like The Bounce. And if you leave a review, that helps us as well. We read those reviews and appreciate your comments. So please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, next time on The Bounce, we're going to talk about the identifying marks of authentic discipleship. If I ask you, what does a committed disciple of Jesus look like? What are the things that are going to be true about that person? Could you come up with a list off the top of your head? What would be on that list? Next time on The Bounce, we'll be joined by Pastor Dean and Sarah from City Church in Tallahassee. He's written a Bible study book called Marks of a Disciple, Six Measurements for Growth. And we'll talk about how we form healthy, strong disciples, how we make disciples as pastors. That's next time on The Bounce.